When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode of Risk, you'll hear Justin Hall. I, I want to take your, your balls, pull them out, and stuff them in your own ass. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I want to let you know that Risk is supported in part by FXX, presenting Man Seeking Woman, a new surreal dating comedy from former SNL writer Simon Rich and executive producer Lorne Michaels, starring Jay Baruchel of This Is The End, and Eric Andre, who's been on risk uh, several times. You might also know Eric from The Internship. Anyway, Man Seeking Woman premieres on January 14th at 10.30 p.m. on FXX. It's the most original and visual comedy you've seen in years. A lot of super wonderfully creative people involved in it. That is January 14th, 10.30 p.m. on FXX, Man Seeking Woman. Don't miss it. Also, one great resolution you can make for the new year is to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. And I have a small business with Risk and the Story Studio, so I know an easy way to do that with Stamps.com. Think about how much time you've wasted going to the post office, driving there, finding parking. Stamps.com is a better way to get postage. Just use what you already have, your computer and your printer. To get official U.S. postage for any letter or package, everything you do at the post office you can do right from your desk and at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. We've been using Stamps.com for years now, and we love it. Right now, use our promo code RISK to get this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Grand Unified, behind me now. This episode is the best of Risk number seven. This is the seventh time we've put a compilation of some of our favorite stories from the past several months together, and it's a really long episode. Uh, It's so hard to choose which stories we're going to feature. A lot of stories are just way too long to put on a compilation, but... We put together a pretty great one here, and I, I, because it's so long, I just want to keep my own talking to a minimum here. 
In a little bit, we're going to hear from my good friend Ben Grant, uh, was a fellow member of the state with me on MTV and then went on to do Reno 911, wrote the movie Night at the Museum and the two sequels. We'll hear from him in a bit. But first, we're going to start with Dixie De La Tour, who is a legendary host of a storytelling show of her own out in San Francisco, the show Body Storytelling, where people share stories about their sex lives Here she is now telling a story at Body Storytelling in San Francisco. It's Dixie De La Tour with a story we call Too Many Cans. The sex party's been going on all night long. And we're in a McMansion in Oakland. It's one of those amazing places with 18 bedrooms and a building out back that has a hot tub and a sauna. And because this sex party is my birthday, some friends of mine have offered to cook a big southern breakfast for all the people who've stayed around. And there have been hundreds of people at this party. There's a lot of people still in this building. I'm sitting in the hot tub with five or six friends and we can smell the biscuits cooking. We can smell the bacon and the Jimmy Dean sausage. And we're sitting there talking about all the crazy things we've done and seen the night before, naked, feeling really good, waiting. It's about a half an hour till the breakfast is about to be served. Of the people sitting in the hot tub with me, naked, One of them, this guy who looks a lot like Jeff Goldblum, which if you know me is my ultimate fantasy. Um, Jeff looks at me across the hot tub and he says, hey Dixie, how come in all the years we've been throwing crazy parties together, we've never fucked each other? And I'm like, hmm. And I'm trying to act like I don't really have an answer, but the truth is, Jeff has an 11-inch dick. I have watched a lot of things at those parties. It's like a floor show. This thing is scary big. And I'm going, "Ah, that's a good question. I don't really know. And he's like, well, it is your birthday. And we have a little time until breakfast is served. Why don't we run upstairs to take care of that? And I'm, you know, when your birthday comes around every year, you look at your life and you go, what have I achieved? (laughs) And what is still lacking? Have I fucked an 11-inch dick in my life? That would be no. And I'm like, okay, let's do that. Fuck yeah, let's just go do that. Let's do that. We climb out and everybody's applauding. Yeah, go do it. We go up the stairs into one of the 18 bedrooms. And as we're going up the stairs, smell of biscuits everywhere. So go up the stairs, I'm like, you should know, I'm kind of at the tail end of my period, so I have put a sea sponge up in there, kind of take care of business. So just, you know, it's not going to bother you, but I just thought you should know. And he goes, that's fine, that's fine, don't care. Going to use a condom, it's cool. We go up to one of the bedrooms. 
Um, he's very excited because he's like, queen of the sex parties, gonna fucking have at that. And I'm kind of like, what did I just say I would do? <laughs> and I get on my hands and knees on the bed and he puts a condom on, he's getting lube and he starts to go at it. And as soon as he puts that fucking thing in me, I'm like, this is a really stupid idea. <laughs> I don't want this at all. And I'm making noises that he thinks are like, yeah, she likes that. And the truth is, get that fucking thing out of me. It's enormous. But you don't want to say that because that's rude. And I'm committed. And so he starts saying all the great things. Yeah, big ass. It's awesome. You like that big dick, don't you? And I'm like, mm-hmm. And... And I feel like one of those hollow chocolate bunnies from Easter. <laughs> All my organs have been shoved down my throat and there's just barely room enough for his penis inside me. I'm trying to figure out how to get out of this. And as I'm making noises and he's making noises and his dick's getting harder and harder, which is making it worse, I see... I see this hairy arm come through the open door and it's holding a Jimmy Dean sausage biscuit. <laughs> and it says, hey Dixie, we've already had breakfast because y'all been going at it for a while. This is the last biscuit and it's your birthday breakfast. Do you want this? And I look over my shoulder at Jeff Goldblum and I say I will give you half of it if you take that fucking thing out of my pussy right now <laughs> he's been fucking all night it's fine we sit naked on the edge of the bed we break it in half we sit there it's fantastic you know we go downstairs we have cheesy grits we have every southern breakfast item there is that's left because we've been fucking for a while. And eventually, I clean up, I go home, I'm in that post-party bliss. It's been an awesome birthday party, crazy shit everywhere. And I'm kind of high, I'm really high on my life. And as I'm about to go to sleep at three in the afternoon, I realize I probably might want to get that sponge out of my vagina. So you know how they tell you that the vagina has an ending? <laughs> what I learned much later is the vagina has a cul-de-sac. <laughs> it really does. There's a lot of sex educators here who will tell you that's the truth. <laughs> and so I am reaching underneath, trying to grab this thing and all I can get is the tiniest, I'm pulling out tiny little flecks of sponge. And I'm flicking them and I'm doing it again. So if I'm not already stretched out from the 11 inch dick, I'm sticking my own fucking arm in there and I cannot get it, I cannot get it. Monday comes. It's still in there. And I'm feeling like this is going to be a problem really soon. I should call a doctor, but I'm kind of embarrassed to call a doctor. 
and say, I let a monster cock get inside me. And I thought that there was an ending to the vagina, but apparently I was wrong. And so Tuesday morning, 72 hours or so have passed. And I get a phone call from my friend Julie. Julie's been at the party. She had left earlier. She wants to see, did anything happen after she left? It was a great party. And I happened to mention that I have had a sea sponge inside my vagina for 72 hours. <laughs> Julie is queer. She knows a lot about vaginas. She's like, have you been to the doctor? I'm like, no. She's a sex educator. Do you think you should go? I'm kind of embarrassed. And she's like, well, just come over and I'll get it out. This is an awkward moment in a friendship when this happens. And I'm like, this feels weird to me. And she's like, so I'll tell you what's going to happen. I just want you to know what you're walking into. You're going to come over to my apartment and you are going to take your bottoms off. You can leave your shirt on. You're going to climb into my clawfoot tub that has no water in it. You're going to throw your legs over the side. I'm going to put on a latex glove. And I'm going to get in there in a position you can't get in there. And I'm going to get it out. I'm like, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> so I go over to her house. As I'm walking up the staircase into her railroad apartment, she's standing there and I'm like, I've given some thought to your plan. And here's another part of the plan that I would like to have happen. It's been in there for a while. I feel less than fresh. So when you get it to a place where I can get at it, like just a little bit, get the fuck out of the room. And she's like, okay, whatever you want. And so I go into the bathroom, I take off my bottoms, I climb into the ice cold closet tub. I'm sitting there with my gaping maw open, waiting for my good friend to come in and essentially fist my vagina. And she walks in wearing a yellow dishwashing glove. I'm like, what the fuck is that? She's like, I'm out of latex gloves. I thought I had some. I'm like, all right, I guess. We're committed. Let's do it. So she's leaning over the side and she's just getting it in there and I'm just like, this is not a moment I ever wanted to have in my life. And let's, let's think about how much has been going on down there for days. I'm a little sore and it's getting sore by the minute. She's doing the same thing I am. She could just grab the tiniest bit and there's nothing coming, tiniest bit. Cause you know what? There's not a lot of grip in a fucking dishwashing glove. So eventually she sits on the end of the tub and she gives me a very serious look and she says, I think it's time we had a talk. What's your STD status? I'm like, what? She's like, the glove's not going to work. I'm going to have to stick my bare arm in there. Is there anything I need to know about your past? <laughs> I don't want to have this conversation with you. 
it's fine, I got checked. Why are we talking about this? I just want it out. I just want it out, please get it out. And she goes, okay. She gets rid of the glove and she inserts her bare arm up inside there. And almost immediately she grabs it and I feel it start to move and come out a little bit. And I look her in the eyes and I say, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. And I terrify her and she runs out of the room and shuts the door. I mean, I don't want to be too graphic. But if your golden retriever came across this on the beach, it would roll in it for sure. I reach into my purse where I have brought a Ziploc bag. I pull it out. I put it in a Ziploc bag. I zip it. I put it inside a plastic grocery bag. Tie it up twice. Put it inside and I wrap it up seven times to make sure it's trapped and away from me. And I come out, she's obviously gone and washed her hands very thoroughly, and I see her standing at the end of the railroad apartment, looking in the other direction like a dog that's been caught doing something it probably shouldn't do. <laughs> and from about 30 feet away, as I go down the stairs to leave, I go, we'll never speak of this again. <laughs> she goes, I agree. <laughs> a couple months later, I'm at a sex party. Jeff Goldblum walks up to me and he goes, so, you know, we were interrupted a while back, and what do you think? You want to give it another go? And I'm sure he's thinking, big deal, what's an 11-inch dick? What's an 11-inch dick? What's an 11-inch dick? Followed by your own arm inserted 200 times. Followed by your best friend's arm inserted another 200 times. And I give him a kiss on the cheek, and I say, thanks, darling, I'm good. Oh, look, it's a surprise package. Big. Dick. Big. Dick. Ho, ho. Big. Dick. Big. Let's see what Dick does. Big. Dick. Big. Dick. Be careful, Dick. Big. Dick. Big. Dick. I think Dick is about to get into trouble. Big. Dick. Big. Look out, Dick. Look out. Oh, Big. it's too Dick. late. Big. Dick, let us see if Dick is hurt. Dick, big, Dick, big. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm genuinely, uh, I can't decide between two different things uh, to talk about. So do people want to hear a ghost story or a story about acid? Acid. Okay. <laughs> fuck, fuck. That's the one Kevin said I should do. Uh, I, I, I told Kevin I was torn, and he said that, and I didn't want to listen to him. So uh, I grew up with Kevin, like, in college and stuff. Uh, Kevin Allison, who does this wonderful show, and he uh, was with me this whole time but doesn't know any of this stuff, and he said, well, fuck, I'd like to hear the acid stuff. Um, so uh, I, I've done a lot of acid. <laughs> I've done a, at least 400 hits of acid. 
and I know that because over about a four-year period, and I know that because while I was doing it, I was sort of keeping track. And I say not lightly, acid is very much a part of why I am who I am. Acid is very much a, a reason that my brain works the way it does. And this is the story of my bad trip that I had. So, uh, the first time I ever did acid, I bluffed myself into it. After my freshman year of college, I went to New York University, and then I came back to Tennessee, where I'm from, a very small town in Tennessee, where I really only had two friends. And when I came back, they said, they had discovered acid their freshman year. And they said, have you done acid, man? And I, and I, I was big New York big shot, and I didn't want to admit, no, of course I haven't done acid. And so I said, yeah, acid's great. I love acid. Uh, and they said, good. Pop, 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 pop. Uh, let's do some right now. And so I took four tabs of acid and launched into it. And that, that was the first time I'd ever done it. And the big thing I remember from that first trip was driving around in the mountains in Josh's old Volkswagen bug. And there were, there were holes in the floorboards so you could see the road uh, <laughs> and going through. And, and we were listening to uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds loud. And the mercy seed is waiting over and over and over and again. And it's pouring rain. And I'm in the back, like trying to keep my feet on the beams so that I don't go through to the road. And it's pouring rain and rain is splashing up from the road and just tripping balls. And my friend Sam is in the passenger seat with a Coke bottle, and he's going, hey guys, hey guys, hey guys, nothing. <laughs> and, and, and over the course of the trip, he must have done it 50 times. And I'm holding on, and, and we're racing down these deserted roads, and the next day, uh, Sam told me that his Coke bottle was singing Elvis songs to him. And when he was trying to get our attention so that we could see, the, the Coke bottle was going, shh, so that's that. That's what that was was happening, and it was not raining the night before at all. And his uh, Volkswagen did not have holes in the floorboards, so I was in. I loved acid. I, like, I, like after that, I, that was the most fun. I, it's it's a a uh, if you've who's here done acid? Woo! Woo! Yeah, it, it's it's a nitrous engine through a funhouse, and I I loved it. And part of that first acid trip sort of made me the way I was the rest of my acid experience, which is I was in control. Like when something terrifying happened, I could very calmly steer away from it and go that way. You know, when I, when I started to think dark, scary thoughts that I didn't want to think, I was very, very competent at just like, okay, I'm not going to think about that. Or, or walk into a weird place I'd never been before, and that corner's got a scary, well, I'm not going to go into that corner. I'm going to go that way. And, and, and I think that's because the very first trip I ever had, I was pretending I'd, I was the pro. I'm the captain of the ship, guys. Don't worry. Everybody's okay. You're with me. I'm going to weather us through this storm. And that attitude kept me through acid my whole time I did acid. And there was really good acid around. This is in the late 80s. So I could trip balls and be in public. Um, I, I did acid in museums and at school and in restaurants and I could order and, and nobody knew that I was totally fucking tripping balls and that people's faces were like melting off of their skulls but I, I was 
I knew it was the acid, and I was totally in control. And, and, and part of that, I think, was because I was weird and quiet all the time anyway. But I, I spent a weekend in Vegas with people where I did 12 hits of acid over three days, and nobody knew. None of my friends knew that I was on acid. I always tripped alone, always, this whole time. After I left my buddies in Tennessee and went back to New York, I tripped alone. I think because I'm a weird private person and didn't want to share stuff. And I think because I've been around people who have a bad trip and you have to rescue them. And so you spend your trip keeping your shit together and like arranging the helicopters to get the guy down out of the ravine when you should just be fucking hiking in the Alps and having a great time. And, and, and so I, I tripped alone and, and I tripped alone a lot. I was so good at people not knowing I was on acid, I got pretty casual about using it. I accidentally once tripped with my parents for six hours. Um, my parents were not hippies, my parents were Church of Christ. My friends and I in Tennessee had a system. I had an uncle with a cabin way up in the mountains, like this evil dead looking fucking cabin way out in the middle of nowhere. And so we would go up there and do acid and trip for days in a row. And so the system was, Josh would call, we would hit, boom, because it was a 40 minute drive up to this cabin so that like it would start to kick in when you left the highway and get onto the dirt road. So that you start to enter Wonderland when the road gets bumpy and, and, and it was perfect. So New Year's Eve, he says, I'm starting the car, drop. So I drop, boom, 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 boom. And I'm sitting there and I'm waiting for Josh to pull up and 10 minutes go by and 30 minutes go by and an hour goes by and my, my brain is starting to get weird. And uh, Josh calls and said, car won't start, dude. Happy New Year. So any other night, my parents would have been in bed by nine, but it's New Year's, so they're up the whole time. So I'm there tripping balls watching Dick Clark uh, and realizing that I am my father, which at 20 is a big realization to make. Like in 20, when you realize, oh, everything I'm doing, I'm thinking I'm this weird punk rock avant-garde dude. I'm just my dad. I drink the same fucking beer. I walk the same. I talk the same. I hate the same commercials, you know? And, and, and that at 20 is a big realization. Uh, back in New York, I continued doing acid a lot. I did acid, and when it was warm, I hung out in Washington Square Park or Central Park and walked around, and when it was cold, I went into the Natural History Museum or the Met, because uh, they were both free. Uh, the Natural History Museum, I, uh, for those of you who don't know, I wrote the movie Night at the Museum, which makes a lot of sense that I did a lot of acid. <laughs> like, uh, like, 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 and I... And I and, I, and I, didn't, I, had a, I had a partner writing that, so I didn't write the whole thing. But there are moments in that movie that are totally fucking happened to me, man. Like, the, the, uh, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt never spoke to me, but I know the sensation in that museum of like walking down the dark halls and sort of forgetting where you are because you're listening to, oh, wow, listen to that cool accent. Listen to what those kids are talking about. And you forget where you are. And then all of a sudden, fucking dinosaur! Fuck! Like, and you genuinely, for about half a second, think there's a really a fucking alive dinosaur right there. And, and in this existence, half a second is a long time to think that there's really a dinosaur right there. And so I experienced that. And I also, the dioramas, like the dioramas in Natural History Museum in that movie are very much from my acid days. Because I remember looking at the dioramas and spending tons of time and thinking, how do, how do they know when one of them, there's so many, how do they know one of them didn't get out? and then laughing hysterically in my head. 
at how funny it would be to go to a guard and say, how do you know one of them didn't get out? Um, and that, that was the drug. So I, I learned a lot on acid. The two big things that changed my life from that drug were I was a really angry kid. I was a punk rock. I, my parents were not great to me, or at least I thought not at the time. And I was a punk rock kid in Tennessee, so I had green hair in Tennessee. So I, people slashed my tires, and so I was an angry, angry kid. And I, I took that anger with me to New York, and I, I cut myself, and I had pins in my skin, and, and I, was a, I was a furious. And an acid trip gave me a big realization that, like ecstasy, when you make a realization on acid, it sticks, if it's true. And I realized, like, I'm not obsessed about other people. I'm walking around all day thinking that everybody hates me or thinking that everybody thinks I'm weird or stupid because of my accent or everybody in NYU has better clothes than me and I think everybody hates me and I realized people don't think about people they don't know. People don't think about their coworkers. People are so wrapped up in their own brain that they're not hating you. They don't have time. They don't think about it. And that's a, kind of an obvious realization to make. But without acid, I never would have made that realization. And it changed me from being a paranoid, hateful, angry person to fine. I can just walk around. Nobody in this room is thinking about me. If I sit in the corner and keep my mouth shut, nobody gives a shit what I'm thinking, <laughs> which is huge. And, and it, it changed me from being angry to being okay. Uh, and the other thing that it did, acid, was I never wrote a word uh, until I did acid, um, which is just true. Like, I hated writing in high school. I never wrote funny sketches. I was in the state for a year, and I didn't write any sketches the first four shows of the state. But acid did something, uh, and I am now a professional writer. I, I make a lot of money, and I love it. And, 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 and thank you. And, 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 but it's, and I enjoy it, and I think it has something to do with some clogs that acid washed through and I think it comes from going to the Met and looking at paintings saying wow Christ looks like a boxer in that one hey how you doing St. Paul what are you doing hey let's go over to this talk to this dragon and like loosening up this weird sort of dialogue in my head that now is my fucking job um and that's acid um so I started using it so much that I, I really wasn't learning anything I was just sort of fucking around on it and I realized I can't do acid forever. I looked bad. I was skinny. I looked like Sid Vicious, which at the time I thought was cool, but my friends were worried about me, and, and I looked like I was about to drop dead because I never ate. My skin was bad. I was skinny, um, and I should stop. And I realized that if I was going to stop doing acid, I can't do it with having always avoided that monster in the corner. Um, I knew that the scary idea in my head or the scary thing under the stairs, I always go, hey, I'm not going to think about that. And I know that if I'm really going to use acid as a tool to make my brain better, I have to go, I have to face this thing. I have to find out what's there. And it's probably going to be okay. But I can't have avoided a big thing my brain is saying for all of these trips. So that's what I did. My big fear from doing this was two friends really ever for the first like 17 years of my life these two guys who did acid with me and one of them acid totally fucked up one of them was probably a better writer than I was at least when I was 18 and acid changed him between freshman year and sophomore year the, the time I saw him those two summers I, I came back and he was a different guy and I don't mean in an esoteric way I mean he couldn't put words together um, he he was a different guy and he tried to explain to me once that he had a bad trip, that uh, he was making out with some girl, and suddenly she was a mannequin. And then suddenly, 
he was on the floor making out with this mannequin in a room full of people, and they were all watching him. And he said at the time, I don't know what really happened. I don't know, was, was it a girl that I freaked out with? Was I really making love with a mannequin? I don't know. But he lost something. He would say, I hit the fucking brake. Like when he wasn't on drugs, he would just sort of say that sometimes. So it wasn't like an esoteric, you're slightly a different guy. Like acid did something damaging to Sam. And so there's that. Part of my brain was like, is that going to happen to me? But I needed to do it. If I was going to stop doing this drug, I needed to make this trip. I needed to go there. So I did. I took five hits of acid and I went. uh, The trip geographically, I walked from where I lived on 10th in New York down to Washington Square Park, all the way up Fifth Avenue to Central Park, through Central Park, down Broadway, back to 10th, which is about 20 miles. I walked this whole trip. It wasn't monsters that got me. Like, it's hard to describe, but the fear that happened, and I don't know how it began, was it's not that I couldn't remember who I was, and it's not that I didn't know who I was. It's that I knew who I was, and who I was was nobody. I was nothing. And so I was walking around thinking, well, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Um, Well, I've got pink hair. Uh, Yeah, that's not you. That's bullshit. You're doing that to impress people so that you can avoid actual conversations. Uh, Who are you? Well, I'm an actor at NYU. You don't want to be an actor. You don't take it seriously. You're making fun in your head of all these people who want to be actors. Who are you? Uh, Well, uh, I'm from Tennessee. You don't want to be from Tennessee. You don't take pride in that. Who are you? And it was peeling an onion, and there was nothing in the middle of the onion. I knew all the things that I wasn't. I knew all the things I was pretending to be. There was nothing else. There was nothing in the middle. And it wasn't a esoteric sitting on a psychiatrist's couch exploration of that. I was bawling and with snot running down my face and terrified because I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where I didn't know to go back to 10th Street because like I didn't know I didn't know who I was like very real I didn't I wasn't anybody it's terrifying uh, thanks Kevin for suggesting this one thanks guys <laughs> it's a really good ghost story you guys uh, so so I, I, I really genuinely didn't know who I was and the things a couple of things came out of it I uh, I uh, shaved my head for the first time and never dyed my hair again that's nothing I I uh, had a Walkman that I used to listen to all the time, and I threw it into the reservoir in New York, uh, Central Park, because I realized I was avoiding people by listening to music instead of really being where I was. I used to, at the end of state shows, there would be parties, and I never went. I would go away because I was scared. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to be there. This is my phone now. It doesn't play music. It doesn't have videos. Because I want to be here. Uh, like I, and, and this was 20 years ago. But it was because it, it taught me that I was avoiding just being where I was and being myself to the extent that I wasn't anybody. And I would say in a very real way, who I am now started that night that I, I realized, like, well, I'm nobody yet. But I have to start to be something. I have to really start to listen to people and be honest with people and open people and be something, even if it means I suck. <laughs> you know, like, I have to be that. Even if it means I have to, like, let pe- people know what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. And that's really when I began to realize, well, I'm going to be a writer. Even if I'm not good at it, that's the one thing that I'm kind of doing and I'm going to do it. I kind of opened up to people and 
I'm still not the most open person in the world. As anybody who knows me knows, I'm still very, very quiet and very, very shy. Uh, but I'm a writer. You're somebody. Well, that's not, that's not what I mean. I, 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 everybody is somebody. Uh, I, I, I'm like, but I'm a writer. I know that. Uh, I don't have many friends, but the friends I have know everything there is to know about me, and I trust them and I love them, which I didn't have before. And... I mean, I'm, I'm doing great. Like, I'm not, like, living on the street. I have a big, giant house from all these stupid movies. But, but, uh, but it really made me who I am by washing the slate clean and making me realize that I, at that point, really was a bunch of bullshit that I was telling people. And that's a good thing to learn at such an early age. And uh, the other weird thing that I think about a lot is, you know, Sam took a, some weird acid and he never came back me too like there was another guy that took those five tabs and that guy's gone This is Risk. This is Connor Youngblood behind me now. And we just heard a story from Ben Grant. Hey, if you're in New York, on January 9th, 2015, Risk is at the Bell House in Brooklyn, a huge show with SNL's Sashir Zameda, Late Night with David Letterman's Eddie Brill, the great comedian Jackie Cation, best-selling author and Esquire writer A.J. Jacobs, and another great comedian, Matt Bronger. That is going to be one hell of a show. January 9th at the Bell House. Find out more at risk-show.com slash tour. And then on February 6th, I want everyone to know we're going to be in the Chapel Hill Carborough area doing a show at DSI Comedy Theater. Hey, listen, we need pitches for that show. If you're in the Chapel Hill or Carborough area, pitch us your stories about mad love love of anything just great juicy true stories about love pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions one other thing you might recall chris castiglione was a member of the risk team for a long time he created our site risk-show.com and chris went on to create an online class called one month html a lot of risk fans took the class and loved it well now Chris and his business partner, Matan, have created One Month Rails, a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials to teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build the first web application, like a simple photo-sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person to help you out. In One Month Rails, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. 
So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. <laughs> Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And as always, you're helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now, in just a bit, we're going to hear from Rachel Rosenthal, remarkable story that she told at the Risk Live show in New York City. But before that, we're going to hear one of our radio style stories. This is actually one of the two radio style stories that I wanted to include on this episode. But the other one by Tori Weston about uh, surviving child abuse, that breathtaking story was just too long to include on this compilation. So be sure to check out all the episodes of Risk. This is just a little taste of what we do. But this one we're about to hear is by Megan Voss, and it's a story we call War and Peace. My sophomore year of college, I did something a bit crazy. I signed up to be an archery counselor, and I had never done that before, but the camp that I applied to was right down the street from my parents' house, and they were like, we'll train you, we'll give you a good chunk of money, and we'll even give you a place to sleep. And I'm like, hey, it could be fun, you know, teaching kids giving my gifts to the next generation, that really appealed to me. And so I'm like, okay, let's go ahead and do this. Even though I honestly haven't shot a bow and arrow since high school. What I didn't realize was that this camp had a reputation in the town that my parents and I lived in, but we hadn't been living there long enough to know what that reputation was. It turns out that this camp was for spoiled, rotten, little rich kids from cities. Like, the first hint that I got that this was true was we had a whole week as counselors preparing for the kids to come to camp. Some trucks came up one day, and a bunch of bags were unloaded, and I'm like, what's going on here? And one of my supervisors is like, oh, we're going to unpack the kids' bags for them. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, what camp has counselors unpacked the kids' bags for them? I mean, I felt like we were preparing them to check into a hotel, not a summer camp. And when the kids got there, I also remember one of the other counselors calling them Japs. And I was like, Japs? There are no Asians at this camp. I didn't know that it stood for Jewish American Princess. I had never heard the term in my life before. I mean, looking at these kids, it didn't seem like that term applied to them. They seemed like good kids. But it turns out that was just the honeymoon period. That first week when everybody's so happy to see each other. The worst, by far, were the teenage girls. 
and the preteen girls. The absolute worst behavior I had ever seen in kids. So it started out small. Like, it wasn't anything I could call them on right away. They liked to play dumb and ask these loaded questions like, Hey Megan, where do babies come from? Hey Megan, can you tell me why my vagina does what it does during a period? Or, hey Megan, do you have a boyfriend or do you have a girlfriend? Tell us all about it. They would ask them so innocently, like you knew that they were ribbing you, but you couldn't call them on it. I mean, their idea of fun was never archery, which is what I was supposed to be teaching them. Their idea of fun was, let's see how uncomfortable we can make our counselor. And so it escalated from the questions to outright behaviors that... I mean, on what planet is it acceptable for you to stand in the middle of my archery range and pull down your pants and waddle around in your underwear? And on what planet is it acceptable for you to shoot arrows into the woods, like pretending that you can't possibly aim at the target, which is three feet in front of you? Oh no, you have to aim straight up and shoot the arrows into the woods. This became a war back and forth between me and these kids. They would do something to annoy me. I would do something to stop that behavior and call them on their shit. They hated me because I would tell them that question is inappropriate or no, I am not going to let you sit here and insult me or no, I'm not going to let you just shoot arrows into the woods without taking responsibility for it. So go get my arrow, please. We would just go back and forth and back and forth all summer. I mean, these kids were little monsters and not the cool Lady Gaga kind. They were just evil. <laughs> I kept pushing back because I'm like, I'm not going to let these spoiled, rotten kids win. Unfortunately, my boss didn't quite agree with that. He told me several times, Megan, you can't make them go fetch arrows from the woods. Megan, you can't just kick them out of the range unless there's like an obvious misbehavior. You have to explain to them what they're doing wrong. And it sounded perfectly reasonable, but in my head, it was like, you're taking their side, man. You're letting them win. What are you doing? I mean, granted, they're not like the boys who tend to punch each other when they're misbehaving, but I know how to call these girls on their shit, and I'm not about to stop doing it. My boss, again, pushed me to be a bit more tolerant. He said that I should try some bargaining strategies and see if I could get them to do some archery in return for something they might consider to be a bit more fun. And the one thing I figured out was that the girls really admired my friendship bracelets, which are these little woven bracelets you make out of embroidery floss. And I happen to know how to make some very complex stitches. So I figured out that I could get about 20 minutes of relatively calm archery out of them if I promised to sit down and show them how to weave friendship bracelets at the end of each session. Not all of the girls in this group were rotten eggs. 
there was this one girl named Claire that everybody loved. She would always move over at mealtimes to make sure you had a seat. She would always give you this amazingly bright little smile that just would lift your day to new heights, even if you were having the crappiest day of your life. It was like she was the complete polar opposite of all the girls in her cabin. And the odd thing was that I never saw them pick on her for it. They actually loved her for it, too. It was a kind of superpower that I really wish I had when I was working at this camp. I really enjoyed spending time with her, and I wish I could have gotten to know her better, but all my time was being spent on this war that I was having with the other kids in her group. It took all my energy to stay on my A-game to make sure that these kids did not get the best of me. I mean, goddammit, I was going to make sure that these kids actually learned something about how the rest of the world lived before they left for the summer. I wasn't going to let them win at all. It was a Sunday. It was our night off. It was the last period of the day, a free period where the kids get to pick what activities they want to do and go do them. And I was walking out to the archery range and I saw my arch nemeses, these middle school girls playing soccer. I kind of rolled my eyes and kept walking all the way out to the archery field at the edge of the camp. I sat there and waited to see if any kids were going to come out. As I was waiting, I realized that it was a lot quieter out there than it should be. I shouldn't be able to hear the birds. I should be hearing sounds of laughter and screaming and soccer balls being thrown around. So I turned around and saw that the girls, they weren't playing soccer. They had all stopped and someone was on the ground. I ran over there and I found that Claire was on the ground. She wasn't breathing. The kids were off to the side and they were crying. My hearing started to fade in and out. My, my vision fading a bit as well and I was really afraid that I was going to pass out but I, I held on and the counselors who were there rushed in and we immediately began to do CPR on her. They tore her shirt off and her face was already turning blue. I recall the hockey counselor uh, giving her compressions and I remember wanting to grab him and be like, no, no, don't push that hard. You're going to break her. She is so thin and fragile and she was so small looking on the ground. I just thought he's going to snap her in two if he pushes any harder. I remember a golf cart swooping in. The nurse was on it and she brought the defibrillator 
As she opened the case, this alarm started to sound going, eh, 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 eh. and I was like, what the fuck do you need an alarm on a defibrillator case for? Feeling as helpless as I was, I'm like, the one thing I could do is pick up this goddamn defibrillator case. And I ran away from the scene and I heaved it as far as I possibly could away from Claire. And it sailed across the soccer field and crashed on the other side. And finally, that noise stopped. The ambulance came across the soccer field and by that time Claire's face was almost entirely blue. I remember watching them take her away. She looked so limp and I remember the nurse telling me that while she was doing CPR she had felt Claire's life slip away. As much as she tried to breathe life into this little girl, it just wasn't staying. I, I have never seen a staff so well trained before I worked at this camp. I mean, we did everything we possibly could to save this girl's life. There was CPR, there was the defibrillator, there was hell, one of my fellow counselors even knew how to intubate her. Even the emergency workers didn't know how to do that. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. We all realized that she probably wasn't going to make it through the night. But we remained cautiously optimistic for the sake of the kids. I remember walking around aimlessly not knowing what to do or where to be and somehow I wandered over to the cabin where these girls did my arch nemeses the kids I had been fighting with all summer lived. And when I opened the door I found a sea of tears. They were all on the ground, tissues everywhere, wailing about the loss of their friend. And I remember walking inside and grabbing the very first one that I could reach and pulling her into my chest and just hugging her so tightly and saying, I'm sorry. I am so very sorry. And at the time, that might have been me saying, I'm sorry about Claire's death. I'm sorry you lost your friend. But I think what it really was, was I'm sorry I forgot your humanity. I'm sorry I forgot that you are a human being just as much as me. nervous so just bear with me 
<laughs> At my bat mitzvah when I was 13, my theme was talking on the phone. I've always been a talker. Uh, I talk to my friends mainly, also my family. I basically talk to everyone about everything that I'm feeling all the time. And I have a lot of feelings. And I talk a lot. When I was in college, I met Zach Schwartz. I told everyone about him. He was a nice Jewish boy. Uh, we became best friends right away, although he immediately fell in love with me because you guys, duh, right? <laughs> Um, but I just wasn't sure if we would ever be more than friends. Uh, but soon after that, I went to my study abroad program in Jerusalem. And when I arrived to my apartment in Israel, there was a huge bouquet of flowers waiting there for me uh, that Zach had sent. And while I was there for six months, he wrote me letters every single day. One of my roommates in Israel, Alicia, said to me, if you don't marry him, I will. <laughs> so I came back to the States and uh, we started dating right away and quickly fell in love. Zach was a very supportive boyfriend. After college, we lived in Boston and he encouraged me to quit the soul-sucking job that I hated to pursue one that I loved but that paid no money. I think I made $17,000 a year at a nonprofit, but um, he wanted to support us. He had this job at the State House. He worked for the Senate. And uh, I always insisted that I paid my rent every month. I didn't want someone financially supporting me, but it actually brought him joy. And uh, he was really proud of this job that he had for the state house. There was one day we were driving near the big, beautiful, gold domed building, and we sat in my car, and he didn't have his ID on him, so we couldn't go in his office. But he pointed to his office window and he said, see that window right there, babe? That's where I work. I'm a big deal. <laughs> So we had a wonderful life and a wonderful love, but I had bad luck. <laughs> uh, while I was in Chicago for a comedy festival, I was sitting in a coffee shop with Zach and a bunch of friends, and this guy uh, walked in wearing a windbreaker, and he sat at a table not too far away from me, and he didn't order anything or eat anything. And at one point, I, I felt him brush against my arm, but I didn't think anything of it. Um, but it wasn't until he left that I realized I had been pickpocketed and my wallet had been stolen from my purse. Less than six months later, I called my bank for my account balance and I find out I have had a series of fraudulent transactions on my account and there have been numerous withdrawals at ATMs that were not me. So thus began mine and Zach's era of trying to combat identity fraud. We became detectives. We were convinced it was that Chicago guy. I had canceled all of my cards and accounts, but my social security card had been in my wallet, and so we, we assumed it was related to that. We just had to prove it. It started with a lot of police reports. Every single time someone accesses your bank and you have to prove it, you have to open yet another police report to investigate. It was like a full-time job. <sighs> There was this one night where Zach was cooking dinner in the kitchen and I was sitting on the floor of our apartment in um, the back bay and I had all of my ATM receipts on one side of me and all of my timesheets on the other and I was trying to compare times to prove to the banks that I couldn't have been taking out the money at that time because I had been at work at that time. It was really ugh, heinous. <laughs> Zach was like my personal army. He would call creditors and speak on my behalf. 
when someone wasn't helping me like they should have, uh, he would like to use his lawyer jargon uh, to try and scare people into helping me. His favorite thing to say was, we could sue you for punitive damages. I, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Meanwhile, I hated being the girl with no money. My friends would ask me to go to dinner. I would always have to say no. I couldn't afford coffee or lunch, much less going out with friends. Zach would pack me lunch every day and cook me dinner every night. Every time I closed an account and opened another one, more fraud would happen. And it wasn't just banks either. Sometimes we would get home from work and my car would be booted with one of those yellow metal boots, even though we hadn't received any parking tickets. Eventually, I just gave up on banks and I closed all of my accounts and I took all of the money out that I had to my name, which was $1,000, in a bank check. A few months later, we're moving into a new apartment, and Zach's coworker, Anne, from the State House, wants to borrow our stereo. It was my stereo, actually. I, I really liked it because you would press a button on the top, and the CD tray would sort of slide out, and you would put the CD on it like a tongue, and then it would retreat back into the CD player. But anyway, uh, we decided it was one last thing to move, so we lent her the CD player. Um, but meanwhile, I needed that $1,000 check to give to the landlord, and I opened my drawer and I can't find it and we start tearing the apartment apart I'm flipping couch cushions I'm freaked out I'm crying I'm like having a breakdown it's every cent I have to my name is that check so I call Sovereign Bank and I explain I need a copy I need to cancel that check and and I need them to cut me a new check and the woman on the other end of the phone says you already cashed that check sweetie I felt the tears immediately well up in my eyes and my throat was so dry. Thus began yet another investigation. Around this time, I started to have extreme anxiety all the time and paranoia. My shoulders were so tight, I would walk just sort of hunched over. It became my new normal. I was convinced my mail was being stolen, so I opened a P.O. box and I would zigzag home on the way to the P.O. box in case someone was on my tail and I like needed to lose them. Since I was 13, I'd always talked to my friends about everything, but not anymore. I hadn't talked to my friends in months. The chatty girl from her bat mitzvah who talked to everyone about everything she was feeling all the time, she disappeared. I would let all my calls go to voicemail and I never listened to my voicemails. Either they would be bad news or they would be friends and family checking up on me and asking me what's happening and I just didn't want anyone to know. When it was a random number that would appear in my phone, my stomach would drop to my feet. I lived with this permanent painful lump in my throat. I just kept thinking about this Chicago guy sitting in his stupid apartment in his stupid windbreaker. And I'm like, why are you stealing from a girl who makes $17,000 a year and works at a children's museum? Sometimes I couldn't sleep at night because I was so anxious and I would just lay in bed crying and Zach would sing me this song that he definitely didn't know the tune to and also he was tone deaf, but it made me feel better and it, it went, Honey pie, you are driving me crazy. I'm in love, but I'm lazy. So won't you please come home? Lobby, dobby, dobby, dobby. I, th- I think those are the real words. <clears throat> so eventually Sovereign Bank calls me uh, and they tell me they have the check. So I go in to take a look and I sit down at the desk with the agent and she slides the check across to me and there I see my name has been crossed off 
and my landlord's name written in and then where my signature should be it's a forged signature and it's Zach's handwriting So uh, I go home and I am sitting on the bed with him and I'm screaming at him, how could you take this money if you know if I was going to give money to anyone in the world, any penny I had, I would give it to you. And you saw me tearing apart the apartment and freaking out about all of these money problems. Why would you do this? And he says, uh, tears are streaming down his face and he's like, I have something to tell you and I don't want to tell you because if I tell you, I'm afraid that you're going to leave me. And I tell him, I'm not going to leave you. (laughs) You're all that I have. And I love you. And so this is when he tells me that he has impulse control disorder, which is a disease that manifests itself in many different ways in different people. So like a pyromaniac can't control the impulse to light fires. And he was diagnosed as a kid. And he's done a lot of dumb things over the years because of it. And in any case, I, I look at him and I'm like, you have an illness. I'm not going to leave you. I will go to therapy with you. I will help you. The only thing that I will not stand for is the lying. If you act on an impulse that you can't control, don't lie. Tell me right away and we will figure it out together. And he looks at me and he says, Rachel, I will never lie to you ever again. So life goes back to normal for the most part. We finally get that stereo back from Anne because I was bugging him about it for months. I still have no bank and no money. And at this point, I feel like the fraud is affecting my loved ones. My cousin has had some check fraud and Zach has had some check fraud. And I just feel like my problems are seeping into my loved ones' lives and without me, they would be better off. Basically, everything seems horrible except for Zach. He's the only good thing that I have. He would leave me love letters around the house, and I would find them throughout the day. And I found one recently when I was preparing for this, and it says, Dear love, my heart is quite literally overflowing with love for you. You are my joy and passion. Have a brilliant day. I'll miss you. Kisses and hugs, ZFS. Zach soon gets recruited by the John Kerry presidential campaign. And one afternoon on a beautiful snowy day, he gets down on one knee in Boston Public Garden and proposes. And I feel like it's the first light that I've had in my life in so long. It's been so dark and I've been so unhappy for so long. And it was the first day I experienced like true happiness and my shoulders retreated for a second. It lasted less than 12 hours. The next morning at 7 a.m., my phone rings, and it's my landlord, which is strange because he never calls me. He only deals with Zach because I don't deal with any of that stuff. And I pick up the phone, and he's screaming. I don't know what the hell you and your boyfriend are trying to pull, but you're being evicted, and you owe me $13,000, and I swear to God I'm going to sue you. And all I hear is $13,000, $13,000. I make only a little bit more than that a year, and I'm like, look, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, you're a liar just like your boyfriend, and I don't understand why all of a sudden you would pay me rent one month when you haven't paid me rent in a year, and that's when I realized that was the one month I mailed our rent instead of giving my rent to Zach to mail, I mailed it one month. And I hang up the phone 
And I go in our bedroom and I start pulling out all of these um, filing cabinet drawers that I've never looked in before because honestly, I didn't want to. I didn't want to see bills or receipts or anything pertaining to money. And I find Gap credit cards and Banana Republic and American Express and I'm cutting them with scissors like I'm in a movie and I'm like this crazy wife who like discovered whatever. And I'm throwing them around and I, I leave the room and I go in the bathroom for privacy. I close the door and I sit on the floor and I call my mom. And I finally tell her what's happening. (laughs) And I tell her about my identity fraud and about the eviction and about Zach's impulse control disorder. And I think she'll understand, like he has an illness. And it's not until I'm actually physically saying these words and they're coming out of my mouth that I realize just how fucked my life is. And my mom, to her credit, says very calmly, This doesn't sound like the best way to start a marriage. (laughs) Why don't you come home for a few days and we'll talk about it? Moms know best, you guys. (laughs) So I hang up the phone and I go in the bedroom to tell Zach and he is um, in a ball on our bed and he's rocking back and forth and I think he's sort of in the middle of some sort of breakdown and I say look I'm just gonna go home for a few days and he's like you don't even know you don't he's just freaking out he's just interrupting me every single time I try to say something he's like just wait you you're gonna leave me and I don't even know what to say I don't know what's real and so I just call his dad in DC and I'm talking to his dad and I'm like uh well I we're being evicted but I feel like it's okay because uh, impulse control disorder he's like don't tell him and I don't even know what to say so I hand him the phone and I go in the living room and I call Zach's therapist and I tell him what's going on and he says the thing that you never want someone to say to you which is do you think he's going to hurt himself and I say no I don't think so and I hang up the phone and that night Zach's dad and brother fly in from DC I I go to a comedy show (laughs) I was not good So uh, we decide, um, all right, I'm going to go home to my parents in Connecticut for a few days. You go home to your family in D.C. for a few days. We'll talk about stuff. We'll figure this out. And, uh, and that's what we decided to do. So we kind of say a quick goodbye, and I go home. And I've never, ever seen him ever again, ever. Six months later, I'm living with roommates and I decide to play a CD and I press the button on my CD player and it pops open on the top instead of sliding out like a tongue. And I realize, wait a minute, this isn't my stereo. Anne didn't give us back my stereo. And then that's when the real movie flashbacks start occurring and I realize Anne didn't borrow our stereo. Anne didn't exist. There was no Anne. I never met his coworkers. He never worked at the state house. I looked at his office from the car and we pointed at the fucking window. He never worked for Carrie. He didn't work. We would get up together every morning and he would get dressed for work and he would pretend to go somewhere. I have no idea where he went. He created people and jobs and stories and we were together seven years. We dated five years. I have no idea which parts of my life were real. Now it's been almost 10 years, <laughs> and uh, that girl from my bat mitzvah is back <laughs> and talking to everyone about everything that she's feeling all the time. 
So much so that I'm on stage telling this story publicly for the first time in front of all of you. So thank you for listening. This is Risk. This is Spoon behind me now. In a little bit, we're going to hear from a new favorite storyteller of ours, Mr. Ray Christian. But before that, another first-timer on the show. He is a comic book artist. He is living in San Francisco, and here he is at the Nerdist showroom. We do a Risk Live show every fourth Thursday there and every fourth Thursday in New York. And we tour. And you can find out a lot more at risk-show.com. Here he is now. This is Justin Hall with a story we call Bears, Booze, and Balls. So um, I was all set to be a little bit intimidated because I'm not a performer, I'm not a comedian or an actor, I'm a cartoonist, but this is actually a place of power for comic geeks. We're in the back of Meltdown Comic Books Mm -hmm. store, which is incredible. So I'm drawing strength from the kind of the stones here, kind of like magma from the New Mutants. Anyone? (laughs) Yeah, all right, well, um, so... Uh, I, I am thankful for uh, San Francisco, and I know that's a little bit weird to kind of say that for a Los Angeles audience, but I love my city. I've been living there for almost 20 years, and I'm still kind of wildly in love with my city. And there's this moment where, you know, you move to a city, and then there's another moment when you actually arrive in the city. And that only in San Francisco moment, that kind of night of, of when I realized I was actually in San Francisco and it was part of me and I was part of it, it started in a bar, the Hole in the Wall bar, Anyone recognize that? Which, okay, all right. So the Hole in the Wall bar was the best bar in the world in 1997. Or at least it felt like that for a mid-20s gay boy who had kind of mixed and antagonistic feelings about gay culture. I don't care about Madonna. I, uh, I hate cologne. Uh, and I have the fashion sense of a walrus. I mean, I, I dress in comic book t-shirts every day. And my, my mother just stopped buying my pants for me just not that, not that long ago. <laughs> So I'm, you know, I'm all about cocksucking and man butt fucking, but like the rest of the rest of the the rest of the identity is kind of problematic. So, um, so when I walked into Hole in the Wall, it was this kind of profound revelation, this like paradigm shift where I walked in and they weren't playing a, a share remix. They were playing the Stooges and on the, the screen, which was this kind of like broken television hung by chicken wire above the, the, the bar, they were playing Turkish oil wrestling, which you're actually allowed, if anyone hasn't, doesn't know what that is, you're actually allowed to leave and check it out because it's so awesome. Um, but it's, uh, and there was, there's a bunch of kind of grizzled bikers that would hang out by the bar, and every time they did a round of shots, they would clang this cowbell, like ching, 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 and grab their shot glasses and slam them on the, on the, on the bar, boom, 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 and eat a, um, a dog bone from a, a basket of dog bones. So just this like wonderful group of people. Um, 
<laughs> there was also there, you know, there was always um, uh, this one guy who looks like Ham- Sammy Hagar in a really particularly bad night, who was always buck naked with a, like a long, like flowing mane of split ends, who would ki- kind of parading around the bar, clutching this huge plastic champagne glass full of some kind of liquid. I don't know what. Also, some kind, uh, usually a guy in a, le- in a rubber outfit who was uh, lying in the trough urinal in the back. And it, it was usually a couple of these guys, right? So one of them I actually found out later was a, a German physicist who was so brilliant, he actually was responsible for organizing and arranging uh, Einstein's papers. So brilliant German physicist by day, trough urinal piss queen by night, which is, that's awesome, right? That's awesome. <laughs> So I feel like I found my tribe, I found my people. Um, there was... <laughs> um, <laughs> so there was one night when, in particular where it really all kind of came to a head. So I, you know, I immediately became a regular of this bar. And within like about two months, um, I was sitting by the lopsided pool table and started chatting and flirting with this wiry, bald, tattooed guy in an Einstein's and Neubotten t-shirt named Wolf. And... We were, you know, realized pretty quickly that we had no place to go, that we both had roommates and we couldn't really do anything. At that moment, this big kind of burly, butch, like shirtless, bearded, you know, bear guy kind of came barreling up to us and was like, hey, guys, like, you guys are hot. Like, do two of you want to go back to my place and have a threesome? It's like, fuck yeah, yeah, I'm the first of this. Hell yeah. This is San Francisco. Yeah, okay. So, so we, you know, hopped in a cab and, and went to his place and, which was this beautiful Victorian, really well-appointed Victorian apartment. And it's always kind of funny to run into these like really butch guys in the bars, and then you get to their apartments, and they're really, and that's a terrible thing way to describe it, really faggy. So like you know, kind of the white couch, and literally the refrigerator magnets that were like Michelangelo's David with all the different like outfits to to outfit, you know, to the well, the cowboy outfit, and yeah. Um, so he also had one of those Pomeranians, the little kind of, the like gay puff dogs, you know, those really faggy puff dogs, named Fluffy. So, so Fluffy was really excited to see us, like really, really, ha- kind of disturbingly happy to see us. So uh, he introduced us to Fluffy and then immediately, you know, stripped his clothes off and we all joined suit and we jumped into bed together, started rolling around. Now, you know, unfortunately the bear was really drunk and... I was having a really hard time kind of performing. Also, Wolf kept on grabbing our balls, like a lot of ball grabbing. And I don't mind a little roughhousing with the boys. Like that's that's cool. That's cool. I'm, I'm not, but I'm not a cock and ball torture guy, right? And he was really going for it. So, you know, and and the bear in particular was like, you know, lay off, lay off, lay off my balls. So I, I kind of turned my attention to the bear and I was, you know, sucking his dick and then he eventually just started kind of nodding off and passing out, which is, which is not really what you want to have happen when you're giving someone a blowjob. It's actually kind of demoralizing. Um, so eventually I, I really, okay, I, I need to turn my attention, but, but, you know, so I'm blowing him, he's passing out and then suddenly from behind, Wolf gets from behind and, and just tug, like really tugs my boss, just like, like that, like right out the back. I'm like, okay, I have to deal with this now. This is getting too much, right? This is... So I kind of spin around and I'm like, okay, what's the deal? Like really, what, what's happening here? Um, and, and he said, well, what I really want to do, I, I want to take your, your balls, pull them out and stuff them in your own ass. <laughs> 
Now, I like to... So... For those of you with, with, with testicles in the audience... Um, so I, I do like to think of myself as having kind of low-hanging balls and kind of nice, kind of, you know, but they don't do that, right? Not, and so I told him, I said, look, you know, they don't really do that. And he said, no, no. Like, if you take the time, if you really love, like, pull, pull out your testicles and really work with them and spend the time with them, why the judgment? Why the hate, people? It's, if... If you take the time with him and really spend the time, any man, any man can get his testicles up his own asshole. All right. So I, I said, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, that's a wonderful sentiment. Um, I don't, I'm, we're not doing that tonight. That's not, that's not on the, you know, not the cards. And can't we just blow each other like normal people? Right. And to which he said, actually, I'm a fetishist and this is the only thing that actually gets me off. So we kind of have to do this or else I'm, I'm not interested. And I, you know, at that point I kind of like, Meh, you know, <laughs> and, and kind of turned back to the bear hoping he had woken up by now. But of course he was passed out cold and that was disappointing. But then I noticed this flurry of activity by his feet and Fluffy had jumped up on the bed and was lick, just going to town on his feet, just like just licking and slurping and getting really into it, just like loving this guy's feet, giving him the best shrimp job. Yes, that is a term, shrimping, um, that that I'd ever seen. Just remarkable, remarkable. And Wolf and I were kind of transfixed, like by this tableau, like holy shit, like. And every once in a while, the bear would kind of half wake up and kind of. No, Fluffy, no, no, fl Fluffy, no. And Fluffy would kind of stop for a moment and kind of pop up like a meerkat, like, and, and kind of look and just wait. And then, and the bear would kind of pass back out again. And the Fluffy would be like, and, and Fluffy, Fluffy was making his way up. Like he had an agenda here, right? So he was, he was going up the, you know, inch by hairy inch of this guy's legs, like, uh, you know. The most thorough tongue bath I've ever seen in my life. And, it's, um, and he got all the way up, to, you know, to the ass, rim job, motorboating the balls, the whole, I mean, the whole thing. And again, like, you know, the, the bear would ever, would all kind of wake up, no, fluffy, no, fluffy. <laughs> kind of wait for him, pass out, boom. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, at a certain... <laughs> At a certain point, I was just like, okay, it's, it's, you know, this is fascinating, but it's 3 a.m. and I'm done. I'm done, right? So I, I turned to Wolf and I'm like, okay, that's, I, I think we should go now. It's, it's about time. We should kind of, clearly this is not Fluffy's first time at the rodeo. Like, I mean, this is, you know, this probably happens every night between the two of them and it's a spe their special time and I'm going to just leave them. Um, but Wolf was like, you know, I'm, I'm actually not done. I'm going to stay and you, you can go now. And, uh, and that was a kind of moral dilemma, right? This kind of uh, ethical quandary, if you will. Um, and it, it's funny because, you know, Miss Manners doesn't write about this stuff, so I don't really know what's the right decision here, but do I leave the man who I've never met before, um, you know, his, his questionable honor, you know, to the, his dog and the other man who I've never met before who wants to grab his balls and stuff him in his ass? I, so 
I eventually I was like, I, I have to leave. I have to sleep. I'm, I'm, I'm gone, right? So, but I did try to extract a promise from Wolf. I said, look, can you promise me that he won't wake up tomorrow with his balls and his dog up his own ass? <laughs> and... <laughs> and Wolf gave me this kind of like smirk that was like kind of evil and he was like no of course not you know like <laughs> so completely unconvincing um, so but I was like I, I gotta go I gotta go so I, I left and I was a little bit kind of perturbed you know like did I make the right decision and stuff and then I started walking down the, the stairs and out into the street and the frown turned upside down and I was like I'm in San Francisco like <laughs> this is the moment like I this is what I've been waiting for. This is the sign, like, you know, this wonderful, beautiful, perverted, amazing city that, like, is going to give me all these stories that I can tell for years. Like, I landed. I stuck the landing, you know, like. Um, and, and I do believe that, like, you know, I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in afterlife. I believe we're given this kind of life, this one moment, you know, where you can kind of, you take advantage of it and grab life by its balls and even stuff it up its own ass if you have to. Yeah. As a coda, um, so the next morning I was actually on BART, which is the San Francisco uh, metro system, and I was on the train. I was kind of hungover and kind of holding onto the pole there, and I looked over. You know, my train stopped at the station, and the the doors opened, and on the station platform I saw the bear. There he was. And I ne- mind you, I'd never seen him before in my life, or never seen him after, but there he was, and I was like, oh oh my God, it's you. Are you okay? Like, I felt so bad about leaving you with the ball stretching guy and the dog and the, and, and like, are you okay? And he looked at me and as did all the other people on the platform and everyone kind of started etching away from me. <laughs> like, and I realized this, this man did not recognize me at all. Like, he had no idea who I was. He had no idea. And I was just kind of like, like that. And then the door is just shunk. And the, and the train passed. So. Thank you guys. You're awesome. So. I want to take your balls, pull them out, and stuff them in your own ass. So the black guy has to go last. <laughs> no problem. No problem. <laughs> so I was comfortable in the water. At least I was comfortable in the water for a black kid who grew up in an urban ghetto called Churchill in Richmond, Virginia during the 1960s and 70s. I was comfortable in the water because I liked to swim. I was comfortable in the water because I just enjoyed it. In fact, When I was 11 years old, I was the first black boy scout to win the mile swim badge. I loved to swim. I was comfortable in the water and I had experiences like uh, I damn near drowned in the pool. I damn near drowned in the lake. And I damn near drowned in the James River. Now I spent a lot of time on the James River because I loved to fish. And I was always looking for that special honey hole and these little islands that existed out in the middle of the river. And so I would take the chance to try to walk out there, swim out there. 
but I must have slipped and busted my ass probably a couple of dozen times. I've been taken away by the current. I got stuck on log jams. I got my ass cut up by branches. But over a period of time, I got comfortable and confident in my ability to do this, so it wasn't such a problem. But the thing is, river water is not like pool water, that sanitary chlorine taste to it. And it's not like salt water, that's a little more natural. No, river water has a nasty, dangerous texture and feel to it. You know, if you're not used to it, it could be really shocking. Now, Churchill was the kind of place where my nighttime lullaby was the sound of passing freight trains. It was the sound of sirens and the sound of an occasional guy on the street going, What's up, motherfucker? (laughs) Churchill was the kind of place that had hundreds of abandoned dogs and cats that roamed the streets aimlessly. It was nothing to see a dead dog or cat on your sidewalk on the curb or in an alley, swollen and bloated with maggots. Churchill was the kind of place where the insane and crazy could walk the streets, talk to themselves, threaten people, and nobody really gave a damn. Now, I was the kind of kid who was socially awkward, didn't have a lot of friends. I walked funny. I moved funny. There was something about my persona that made me a target. So every thug, every hoodlum, every badass, every gangster wannabe who wanted to kick somebody's ass for fun or practice, they came to me. I had a big ass target on my head. Now, I wasn't a little guy. See, I, shit. I was athletic. I was in good physical condition, but I was passive. And I wanted to avoid violence at all costs. But I loved animals. In fact, I loved animals so much, if I found a wounded dog or a wounded cat or a bird with a broken wing or I found turtles from the river, I brought them home. But of all the animals I had a chance to collect, I loved pigeons most of all. (laughs) Now, there was a small pigeon culture in Churchill, and the whole thing about owning pigeons is a pigeon has the ability to get away from you, but he comes back, and he goes away, and he comes back, and he goes away, and that's a damn wonderful thing. You got to love that. Now, the only place in Richmond that was worse than Churchill was a place called Fulton. And if Churchill was a toilet bowl, then Fulton was the corn-impregnated swirl of shit <laughs> at the bottom of the to- at the bottom of the thing. Fulton was the kind of place where. People also abandoned dogs and cats, and cars, and trash, and junk, and an occasional dead body. Fulton was the kind of place that flooded every three to five years, so it had a conscious smell of mold and mildew into the air. Now what drew me to Fulton was the fact that I had a friend who was handicapped, and he was into pigeons in Churchill, and he had people that lived down in that area. And my sister Janice lived down there too, and it was close to the river, so it gave me an opportunity to go down there. But more importantly, the pigeon guys down there, there was a much, much larger culture of guys that raised pigeons. Now this group of pigeon guys, it varied from about five to eight guys at any one time. But the three main characters as a group was a guy named Lester. Had a lot of gaps in his teeth, 
and he was prone to slobber a lot. And he was interested in all things criminal and all things sexual. He used to brag to me about that he had raped an old woman. He bragged about having molested little schoolgirls. He bragged about having forced anal sex on small boys. The other guy in the group was Smitty. He's kind of chubby, dark-skinned guy. And he pretty much stuck to everything that Lester would say. Lester farts, he says it's fucking music. Lester says ass, he goes, <laughs> ass. <laughs> then there was Donnie. Donnie was shaving in middle school. I don't know what damn grade he was supposed to be in for sure. He lived with his grandmother who probably had some kind of dementia, so she didn't know much about his comings and goings from home. And Donnie spoke funny. For example, if you said something to him like about food, he might say, motherfucker, food won't fuck hungry as a motherfucker, man. But you couldn't tease him. You couldn't ask him a question like, what did you say? He would go, motherfucker, you hurt when you teasing me, motherfucker. But I saw Donnie strangle a kid into unconsciousness for his milk money. So he wasn't a guy to be played with. When we were all together and we were throwing our pigeons up into the air to make them flip, but I'm assuming there's a lot of intellectuals in the crowd, so you don't know shit about pigeons. So let, me, so let me explain this to you. You got homing pigeons that fly for distance and time and speed, but that's not what we were into. We were into a type of pigeons called rollers, and what they would do is they would flip, 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 flip almost to the ground. And in order to encourage them to do that, we would start screaming and hollering and slapping our hands, and the birds would flip, 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 and in that moment, I never felt like I had so many friends in my damn life. I felt part of the group. I was part of those guys. I never been so damn happy. But being friends with these guys came with a price. And that price you had to pay is you had to accept everything that they wanted to put upon you. Some of the games they liked to play, they'd always want to grab each other around the ass and just start humping on you. Especially the little guys, grabbing them around the race, humping on them, humping on them. A couple of times they did it to me. I remember Lester saying to me one day, hey Ray, you ever been fucked in the ass? I said, hell no. But then I started noticing I was getting way too much damn attention from this guy. I remember one particular incident where we were all standing outside of an abandoned building. And Lester and Smitty took one of the smaller boys inside. We all stood outside. We know why. And we could start to hear the sounds of slapping skin. Sounds of, oh, oh, no, uh-huh, oh. We looked around. Dogs, sky, what's going on over there? We pretended like we didn't understand what was happening. When Lester and Smitty came out of the building, they were smiling, gave each other a high five. The boy was crying, not loudly. He just had tears in his eyes starting to well up. Nobody in the group said anything, and I didn't say a damn thing. Later, there was an incident 
when we went into an old abandoned factory building and what we were trying to do was look for pigeons and I was working my way up in the rafters but through this big building and the hollowness of it you could hear sounds easily being spoken and while I was in the rafters I heard Lester say we're gonna fuck his ass today one of you guys get by that door one of you guys get by the other door we're gonna fuck him today well I heard that I skimmied out the back out the window and I waited outside I don't know why the fuck I stayed there I should have left but I stayed out there about a 30 minutes later Lester comes out and he is pissed he's going god damn it Ray your ass would have been fucked you are lucky you are one lucky fucking dude I laughed well one day the boys asked me hey Ray do you know the best place on the river to go fishing Oh shit, I was glad to hear that because finally they took their mind off my booty and we're talking about shit I could relate to. So we get down to the river and I'm just a walk in and I'm excited and I'm going, yeah, there's an old abandoned dock over there and there's some stuff over there and there's habitat over there and you can catch a lot of bass right there and this would be a great place to fish right there and I'm just a walk in. But I notice before I almost step in the water that no one's talking to me. No one said a word to me. And I turn around, and Lester's got his erect penis in his hand, and he's holding it, and he's reaching out to me and said, get your fucking ass out of the water, boy. You're going to get fucked in your ass. You're going to get pegged in the ass. And I said, no, uh-uh. I started backing back, backing back into the water. Smitty chimes in, yeah, you're going to get fucked in your ass, man. I heard one of the guys say, man, his ass is scared. Leave him alone. Smitty said, yeah, yeah. Lester chimes in. Oh, no, he's going to get fucked. You don't need to get wet, boy. You don't need to get wet. Get out of the water. I started backing up, backing up. And as he was reaching out for me, I could tell that he didn't want to get wet. And I was going back and back. And I was thinking to myself, I don't fucking want this. All I wanted to do was play with pigeons. I don't want to be fucked. I don't want to be killed. I don't want to die. All I wanted was friends. I just want friends. I just wanted to play with birds. I don't want this shit. And they were coming toward me. And as I went further and further back into the water, the current took me. And immediately when they saw that, everybody took off and started running. Well, the current took me swiftly, and it was carrying me down the river, and I tried to get as close to the bank as I could, and the branches were hitting me, slapping me, cutting me. The boulders were cracking my knees. I went about a quarter mile down the river before I finally managed to grab hold onto a branch, pull myself up on the bank. I was dirty. I was tired. I was cold, and I was fucking scared. And every time I would hear as much of a teeny crackle a branch. I would tremble up in fear. I don't want to die. I don't want this. And for a half hour, I was just petrified, standing there, waiting, wondering, these guys are going to fucking kill me. After about a half hour, I didn't hear anything else. I managed to crawl out of there, dirty, wet, nasty. I made my way across the lot back up to Churchill, into the neighborhood, and some nut or bum sees me and goes, hey boy, what are you doing wet? You look like shit, you know, you love the water, whatever. I said, man, yeah, I'm comfortable in the water. But you know, after that happened, 
I got the word that the guys thought I was dead. But later they found out I wasn't dead. And once they found out, they wanted to kill me. But I didn't want to go back to Fulton anymore to try to avoid them. And since that time has passed, I've often tried to reflect on the sexuality of these guys. See, in the place and the time that I lived, if these guys had sodomized me, it would have been my own fucking fault. No one in my community would have sympathized me. You see, because a boy, that shit couldn't happen to you unless you wanted it to happen. And the warped psychology that existed in my culture, the penetrator, he's not gay. The receiver is gay. The ability to take a man and force your sex on him, that's macho. Nothing gay about that. That's warped. And since that time, I learned to understand that being gay don't have a damn thing to do with who's doing what, who's pitching, who's receiving, who's dumb, who's submissive, who's aggressive. Doesn't mean shit. It defines the nature of the relationship between two people of the same sex, love each other, and comfortable in that context. But I couldn't understand that then. In the context of the place that I lived, I'm gay. Be comfortable in your water. Thank you. That is all for this extra long episode of Risk, the best of Risk number seven. And this is the Black Keys behind me now. We just heard a story from Ray Christian. Now, keep in mind, you can go to the Risk website and check out the listen pages for the table of contents to find out the links to where you can find the bands and the storytellers and a whole lot more. Hey, don't forget... Man Seeking Woman is that new surreal dating comedy from SNL writer Simon Rich and Lorne Michaels, starring Jay Baruchel and the outrageous Eric Andre. The series premiere is on January 14th at 10.30 p.m. on FXX. Check it out. If you're in New York, January 9th is when Risk is at the Bell House in Brooklyn with SNL's Sashir Zameda, as well as the legendary Eddie Brill, writer for uh, David Letterman, also Jackie Cation, Matt Bronger, and best-selling author A.J. Jacobs. That's going to be one hell of a show. Also, in New York and Los Angeles, the 22nd of January is that fourth Thursday of the month when Risk will be at the Pit in New York and at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles, so don't miss us. On February 6th, we are in the Chapel Hill and Carborough area at the DSI Theater, and we need pitches for that show, so please pitch us. Go to risk-show.com slash submissions and let us know what juicy, emotional, surprising true stories you might have on the subject of mad love. But listen, wherever you are in the world, you can always pitch risk your stories because we're always looking for those radio-style stories. A lot of them we record over Skype. So themes coming up this year are mesmerized, intense, 
gross, panic, damage, heart, brilliant, nerve, whoops, nightmare, lies, wonder, rejoice, and more. So find us at risk-show.com slash submissions and let us know what stories you might like to share on the podcast. Spread the word about the podcast to your friends. Let them know how to download the podcast and where to find us. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. On Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. And remember, if you like what we do, we are a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts. And we are listener-supported. We very much rely on the financial help of the people who do love what we do. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member. Or just make a one-time contribution. But be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Pittsburgh, we're coming to you on the 17th of September, or no, of uh, what, October? Oh, my sweet, my sweet, holy Christ.